we had a great trip, and we'll be telling, sharing a lot more about it. And, of course, if you stay after and you have questions for me about Nepal, uh, I'll be more than happy to answer. And then if you're not uh, a friend of mine on Facebook, friend me, and then you can see a bunch of the pictures I've already put up uh, or video. And, uh, and then, of course, we'll, we'll be figuring out a night to, to share going forward what's going to happen. Um, one of the, the w- our focus in Nepal is working with a missionary uh, who's an Indian missionary. His name is Saji Kiryan. And he's planted 26 churches in Nepal. Of which about five, uh, five of which are have been really affected by the earthquake. So, our goal, our focus is working with those churches and those communities to help those churches become a resource for the community in aid and development and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of what we want to do. We want to partner with the churches and and do it that way. Uh, but they definitely need your prayer. The Hindus are pretty upset about everything. They're starting to spread rumors. And, and these are just satanic rumors. But the Hindus are spreading rumors that the, their gods uh, caused the earthquakes because they were angry at the, that they haven't kicked the Christians out of the country. Uh, the Hindus are saying things like the Christians will only give you help if you become a Christian. So stay away from them. All these sorts of things. Which is not true. These are all lies. But... Um, so you can pray for the believers and, and the believers in Nepal that uh, God will just make their witness even greater and let them shine even brighter uh, in their communities. So that's what uh, we, we were, while I was there, we were mainly bringing aid to people constantly. It was just like as we'd get stuff, we would give stuff. And it was constant like, all right, Lord, we need more of this. And I'd ask you guys for prayer and send prayers to the church on Wednesday night. And then I'd have answers like right away. It's like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Um, we uh, finding tarps in Nepal is like finding gold. And when I say tarp, I mean like a, a 12 foot by 18 foot tarp, like a, a tarp you go over to Harbor Freight Tool and buy or Home Depot. And uh, the reason why we're trying to find tarps is because these people don't have homes. Just let them make some lean-tos for the time being until they can get some more aid. Um, of course, the monsoon season is getting ready to start up there. And uh, so finding tarps is very difficult. The government's not helping at all. Uh, containers are coming in, the government's taking them, or they're disappearing. And so um, we met one person who drove, uh, had somebody drive all night on a bus to India, buy tarps at $12 a tarp, they bought 200 tarps, then they brought them back, and on the way back they had to pay a high tariff to get them back into the country. So anyway, us trying to be wise with our resources and our funds, we we prayed, and we... uh, we asked God to provide tarps, and one night we were about, we were about six hours away from, from Kathmandu working between two districts, and we were having dinner at this hotel. It was like the one place we could stay between the two districts we were working in, and uh, Swiss humanitarian aid happened to be at the table next to us. There were only two tables in the whole hotel full. It was us and them, and we were right next to each other. So I went over and said, hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm from California. <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, would you guys happen to have any tarps or food that we could have? And uh, they said, well, we have 2,000 tarps, but 1,500 are getting airdropped to another area. So we only have 500. And I said, well, could we have some of your 500? And uh, <laughs> they said, I don't know. Well, just come by in the morning. So they're in the UN compound. And uh, for some reason, the Nepali all thought I was military. I don't, I don't know why. But I, I'd walk through, and they would, like, salute me. And I'd be like, Hi. <laughs> How's it going? So, <laughs> so when we got to the UN, they were just like, come on through, come on through. Other cars are turning away. It's like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know, 
So we, we got into the UN compound, and the World Food Program's getting set up, trying to get everything situated. I mean, they were still trying to get set up to get the aid to where it needs to go. And we went over to the Swiss humanitarian aid tent, and we said, um, hey, remember us from last night? And it was almost like, oh, they're really here. And uh, we, we asked for some tarps, and we said with, we're with Better Nepal Foundation, and that's the NGO we were working with through Saji. And uh, they said, well, let us talk by ourselves. And so Hannah was convinced we would get at least 50 tarps. Uh, Hannah is Saji's wife. I was convinced we might get 20, 25. Saji was convinced we'd get none. And so, uh, so we went out. We're waiting for them to deliberate. They come back out, and they said, okay, we can give you 200 tarps. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was so awesome. So now we had a new problem. How are we going to get 200 tarps back to Kathmandu? <laughs> so we had to find a truck. And finding cars right now in Nepal and drivers is really hard because all the different aid workers going every which way. And uh, so one truck comes. And they said they want 8,000 8, rupees, 80 bucks. And I'm like, cool, done deal. 80 bucks is not a big deal. Saji's like, no, we're not paying $80 to, to drive these back to Kathmandu. And I said, why? He's like, this guy's ripping people off. He's just gouging people because of the earthquake. I won't pay him any money. I'm like, all right, well, you're in charge. It's your country. <laughs> so I'm like, Lord, please provide another truck. Sure enough, another truck shows up, 4,000 rupees. <laughs> And they're off to Kathmandu, the tarps. And later we took, got those out to Sindapal Choke, which is an area that if you read my little update, 63,000 of the 65,000 homes were, were collapsed. I think that was the numbers I put up there. But um, anyway, I mean, it was just completely flattened area. So um, we were able to get those tarps out to some of those communities. Um, and, you know, every little bit of effort helps there right now. It's kind of one of those things that nobody knows what's going on. Uh, they have cluster meetings with the different aid groups, but like Samaritan's Purse is really frustrated right now because everything that's coming, supposed to come to them is not coming to them. It's disappearing. And so, um, so when we told Samaritan's Purse, we, oh, hey, we got 200 tarps. They were like, what? How'd you guys get tarps? <laughs> we prayed. I mean, they're praying too, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, they're, I mean, they're all <laughs> awesome believers and stuff, but it was just uh, interesting. But they got to meet with the prime minister about their problems. We don't get to meet with the prime minister. So anyway, so God has been so good and faithful. And every, every step of the way in Nepal, he would just open up the next door for us. So um, we'll see going forward now. One of our goals is to try to uh, get the resources to make um, some kind of huts out of corrugated metal and, uh, and bamboo. Uh, so that's one of the things we want to try to get done in Nepal coming up uh, throughout the monsoon season and, um, and so on. And Because the government solution was we're going to give everybody 150 bucks who lost their house. And that's like, it's like nothing. So uh, anyway, we're going to continue working with those churches. That's kind of our goal and our focus and uh, get those churches working with their communities and hold them accountable. That's, it, it is a little bit of a challenge to get the believers to know you got to, really work with the people in your community and so on. And, um, and uh, just continue that way. Lord willing, God will open up the doors to the Hindus and, and uh, they'll give their lives to the Lord and see what, how good. I, on our way out, this is a really good example of Nepal. Bob and I were waiting for our plane to leave Kathmandu and we were sitting in a restaurant just hanging out. And we went to this restaurant. Saji said, go to this restaurant because they have a good bathroom there. Bob uh, got a little bug while he was there. So having a good bathroom close by is some good stuff. 
So anyway, we're hanging out in this restaurant, and the waiter uh, comes up, and he's really frustrated with the government. He's frustrated with everything. He told us, thank you for coming to Nepal. Um, and then uh, we said who we were working with, that we were Christians. And he started to say, well, I heard you guys are only helping people that become Christians. I'm like, no, that's not true at all. Um, and, uh, and so I said, hey, could I tell you the story of Christianity? Can I tell you about it? And he's like, well, I got nothing, nothing else to do. I'm like, sounds good. I'll tell you about it. So I, I started with creation. I said that there is a God who was never created but the creator of all. And he created everything. He's all powerful. He's the living God. And I, I went in from creation all the way to the cross and redemption because in Hinduism, there's no redemption. You get reincarnated. And um, so after sharing with him the story, he's like, I've never heard that story before. So that's Nepal. They've never heard that story before, the story of the gospel. So when they hear that, that way, how this is a God who loves, not a God who hates or fights against you or wants the worst for you, but a God who wants to redeem you, it's a big deal. It's a big difference to their God. So anyway, I told them that, you know, when you're ready and you want to be forgiven for the things you've done wrong and not have to worry about a fear of being punished for these things you've done wrong, you just cry out to Jesus Christ. You ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. And we gave him Saji's number and told him who the people he could contact with in Kathmandu uh, when he's ready to follow Jesus. So anyway, and we were so, so thankful just for the opportunity to be able to lay out that story with an English-speaking person. Uh, and so that it was very good. So we'll tell you a lot more about Nepal. And thank you so much for your prayers. Oh, man, I'll tell you. I, we knew people were praying because <laughs> stuff would happen. It's just like, wow, this is way beyond even what I was willing to ask for. Next time I'm going to ask for 500 tarps, though, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> so, so uh, But, you know, little things that matter, putting together little aid kits, toothbrushes, soap, and things like that. We dealt with a lot of little medical issues. And um, honestly, it was like take a bath. That was like, those were the issues. Um, and so we, we went and got soap for people, gave out the soap. So, you know, it was those sorts of things. So if any of you have lost a loved one in a, a war fighting for our country, words cannot express the gratefulness that we have for our freedom. And um, so if you will, let's just pray a prayer of thanksgiving for their lives. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for men and women so brave in our country to lay down their lives for freedom for each other, Lord, for us. Lord, we know that our freedom has come at great cost, Lord, and Lord, we have the great example of you sacrificing your one and only son for our, our salvation. And we thank you, dear God. I pray your comfort and your blessing on each and every one who's suffered this loss of a loved one during this time. And Lord, we thank you for our nation. And we pray, God, that we'd be faithful with these lives that were lost, Lord. We'd be, we'd be worthy, we'd be faithful with sharing and proclaiming your love and truths. God, that this nation would shine and it would shine brightly full of your people spreading your good news across this globe. And we do thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to invite up uh, Bryce Bonner. And where's, oh, there he is. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Bryce is going to share his story tonight. So come on up, Bryce. Well, hello. <clears throat> it's uh, really a joy to just give a brief testimony to you. My story about a great story. 
And I just want to I tell you about somebody uh, that, uh, that that verse that we just saw in that in that video is so awesome. There in First John, uh, greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life. And um, boy, as I uh, <clears throat> as I go on in my Christian life, uh, thirty-one years now, um, you know, I become more and more aware. Uh, of my complete worthlessness, uh, but at the same time of the amazing worth. You know, just like we're moved to, to appreciate uh, those men uh, that valiantly gave their lives. Um, there's, there's one who is perfect. There's one who is holy. There's one who is uh, infinitely uh, powerful and all-knowing and creative and, and holy and excellent. And, you know, he loves you. And his, his love absolutely passes my knowledge, um, like it says there in Ephesians. Um, it passes our knowledge. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that we don't know his love. <laughs> and I know that he's been so merciful so gracious to me, and, and that's what has happened in the last 31 years is that I, I know that to a greater extent. Um, there's a, a, a verse in the Psalms that says, there is forgiveness with thee that you might be reverenced. And um, I noticed that in, in Paul's early letters, he said that he was the least of the apostles. And now we've started Ephesians here at Calvary Old Town, and he says that he's less than the least of the saints uh, in that one. And then in his last uh, letters to Timothy, he said he's the worst of sinners. So as he progressed in his life, uh, his testimony concerning himself uh, is, you know, <clears throat> it seems to be, you know, there's no good thing in me, but also giving great glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. So just to zoom back then to how I came to know this awesome Savior, I, <clears throat> I grew up in a home in which I thank God for my dear parents who loved me and provided for me. Um, and my mother did teach me uh, to pray um, and say, you know, thank you for the world so sweet, thank you for the food we eat, thank you for the birds sing, thank you, God, for everything. So even as a young man, I knew that God was our creator and provider, but I did not know that he had a son whose name was Jesus. And my Catholic friends that had crucifixes on the wall, that did not look pretty to me. And I wanted to go the long way around this man crucified on a cross. I didn't know he was the son of God. And I was blinded to that. Uh, and so um, on August 7th, 1983, if you'd have asked me to write down 100 things I thought I might want to do, becoming a Christian wasn't, wouldn't have been one of them. I, I probably would have thought, well, I'm an American, I'm a Christian. But I didn't know who Jesus was. And I went to a Baptist church up in Northern California. And they were preaching the gospel. And I was sitting in the back just looking at the things that a natural worldly man, the lust of my flesh, lust of my eyes, pride of my life, would be looking at. I don't even remember what the message was, 
But I remember that when that preacher, Southern Baptist preacher, stood up, uh, from the point he stood up, they gave altar calls regularly in that church, which I learned later. But from the point that he stood up, that those words beamed into my consciousness. And he said, the Holy Spirit is calling you. And I'm, I'm like, uh, well, I guess I, I wouldn't know what to do. You don't have to know what you would do. Just come forward. The Holy Spirit is calling you. And I'm like, who's he talking to me? And everything that I thought for the next five minutes, he articulated. And I was, this was just absolutely mind-boggling to me. I never did go forward, but I told my older brother. And he was, he was very wise and humble. And he, he said, he said, oh, hey, you know, you could come back tonight. You'd have another opportunity. And I was kind of a new age, you know, I graduated from UC Irvine. I was down in Laguna Beach. I thought, he, you know, he must be really unsophisticated. He'd come back tonight, I'd have a, you mean this once in a million lifetime story that I just revealed to him that just happened to me and I'm all, you know, focused in my blindness of my pride. But in his wisdom, he said, well, you got a good point there. How would you like to meet Pastor Larry? And I, I didn't even know that he was a deacon in the church, my brother was. So he brought me to uh, Pastor Larry, and for the next hour, the main thing I remember about being in Pastor Larry's office was the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he, he's the good shepherd. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but the good shepherd, he came to give his life. No man took his life from him. He's the Son of God, incarnate, came from heaven. Uh, he, he, he laid down his life, the reason that our... Father in heaven loves his son is because his son used his authority to just lay his life down for us. That's how he loves us, like we saw in that verse. He laid his life down from, for us, and no man took it from him, and he was alive. He took it up again. And this was such good news to me. It'd be like being over at Dave Johnson's house when he's cooking beef bris briskets or something, and say, you know, would you like to have dinner with us? You bet. And, and so when I heard the, the gospel and was asked, would I like to receive forgiveness of my sins and Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was on my knees in his office asking Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior and to forgive me of my sins. At that point, when I asked him to forgive me for my sins, I, I didn't know how sinful I was. I had not read the book of Leviticus. Um, all I knew, uh, I, was a, I was a good Gentile, like in Romans 2, and I had a conscience. Each one of you has a conscience. We have a conscience, and our own conscience convicts us. So I knew that I had fallen short even of my own standards. <laughs> and so uh, that's the, I, I, I had enough of a conviction from the Spirit of God to, to say, yeah, I need forgiveness of my sins. But like I was mentioning to you, now I'm like, wow, I'm a, what amazing grace. Oh, to say that I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, this is awesome. Uh, what great love God has for us. It was him who chose us before the foundation of the world. And that's just hard for our sinful brains to take in because we have this nature of being independent. But um, you were created biologically because God <laughs> gave life to you. And you were, uh, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, having heard the gospel message, uh, you were born of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit answers to the blood of Jesus Christ and he's willing to take residence in us. 
So I was born again that day. Uh, I was kind of a, believe it or not, a hippie trippy type looking kid with long hair and a beard, played guitars, and uh, they let me actually play a song in the church. So I played this song, and then the preacher stood up and said, Bryce, did you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, would you like to be baptized? And they had a verse on the wall, uh, know you not, so many as are uh, baptized into Jesus Christ or baptized into his death so that like he was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father even so you also might walk in newness of life and I really wanted that I said yes I would and so I I got baptized in front of these people and when I got out of those waters the first thing I wanted to do was go get a Bible and find out who is this Lord Jesus Christ that I told everybody is my Lord and Savior and so I've been pursuing the knowledge of him uh, for the last 31 years, and I'll leave you with this amazing verse um, just to bless your hearts because, um, you know, I recently read that nobody's going to get saved if somebody isn't praying for them. And I believe that's true, and I believe you and I need to, it's an emergency for us to enter into prayer for our loved ones that they would come to know him because he can come at any time. But you know what? Jesus Christ himself has prayed for you. And it says right here, this is what he prayed. Um, in, in verse 20, it says that of John 17, my prayer is not, uh, let's see, sanctify them. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe on me through their word. And that's <laughs> you and I. And so here's what he prayed. Father, I will that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory and the glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I, made, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. Wow, that's the kind of intimate love Jesus wants to have with each and every one of you. The King of glory, the Lord of love is our Savior. So, bless you. Thank you, Bryce. You know, if you spend any amount of time with Bryce, you're going to start realizing that Bryce actually communicates in Scripture. That's... Uh, he knows his Bible so well, and you can see the fruit from that moment, his desire to know Jesus all the more. Uh, you can just see it as he, as he speaks all the time. So, and let me encourage you, if you need prayer, Bryce wants to pray for you, I'll tell you right now. So uh, I don't need to ask him permission for, for prayer for people. All right, uh, well, on Sunday mornings, Rod is in Ephesians, but we're still in Mark. Uh, and we're still going through the book of Mark. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, the, the Gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 12, starting at verse 12. So I'll give you a minute to open that. Mark chapter 12, verse 12. This is where we left off last week. <clears throat> now, before we start reading, let me uh, explain. This is the third day of the Passion Week we've, we've entered into. This will be the last time Jesus teaches at the temple. 
Okay, from this point on, he won't be teaching anymore. He'll be retreating with his disciples to the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper and then on to the crucifixion. So this, this is when he's being questioned by the, by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we'll explain who all these people are again, and we'll talk about them. But uh, the, he, the, he's been asked four different questions. Last week we, we answered the first question. The first question was, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus responded to that. And he told them a parable about a, a vineyard owner and a master of a vineyard that, that uh, rented out his vineyard. And uh, when time came to collect, he sent a servant. They killed the servant, beat up the servant and sent him home. Then they sent another servant. They beat up that one. And then so on. They kept beating up the servants. Finally, the master, the owner of the vineyard, sent his one and only son. And that son they killed and murdered and tried to take the vineyard. And so then Jesus said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, uh, and so the response to that by the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees was that they were seeking to arrest him, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Now this story is so interesting because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, and at this point it's the Pharisees and the Herodians that come up to him. Now let me just sort out these groups real quick for you. The Sadducees were the ruling political party. Okay, they were, they had the, uh, they ran the temple, they had the authority. The Pharisees were a very conservative religious group. Now the Sadducees only believed in the Pentateuch. They only put their trust in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected any type of resurrection. They rejected any belief in angels or spiritual beings. They only believed in the physical and following the first five books of the Bible, the law or Moses' uh, writings. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were very zealous. They wanted to bring back the zealousness of Israel for God, and they believed in all of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, they were very conservative, and they also believed in a resurrection. The Herodians were a political party who followed Herod. Uh, now, Herod uh, the Great died in about 6 B.C., and then his, the Roman Empire went and divided up Judea into different, different uh, areas. Uh, his three sons each got a piece. But in Jerusalem, this wasn't being ruled well, so Pontius Pilate came in as governor to guard over Jerusalem. And that was, that's kind of the, the story of all these different political parties and factions. They all feared Jesus. Why? Because the people were following him, and the people were saying, look with what authority he teaches Look at the power behind this guy. 
And so that's why when Jesus came in and cleared the temple, they kind of stood back and watched. Then the next day when he came back, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Now they're seeking for a way to catch him. And this is the first question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is a tricky question. See, the Jews were all, they debated about the subject all the time. Oh, we don't want to pay taxes to, to Caesar. I mean, after all, Caesar's taxing us. We've got to give 10% of our, our wheat and 20% of our wine. And we've got it, which actually is not that bad when you think about it. Uh, and we've got to also pay a poll tax. And a poll tax is just a, this is for living. For This is for breathing air in Judea you got to pay this tax. And it was one denarius, one day wa- day's wage for the poll tax. But they did not want to pay, and they were actually especially offended, the Pharisees, by the fact that Caesar would print his image on a coin. They looked at this as, as idol worship and idolatry, and they were completely offended by it. And so they come up to Jesus asking him this question, knowing that if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar... Sweet, we're going to go tell Pontius Pilate on you. We'll, we'll get you. But if he says, do pay taxes to Caesar, the people are all going to get upset. They're going to say, wait a minute, we're not going to follow you anymore. And that was the plan here with this well-crafted question. This is where we're going to trip him, trip him up. This is where we're going to catch you, Jesus. Now, notice how they approach Jesus. They butter him up. They start telling him, hey, we know that you're wise. We know that you're... You, you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion. Look, I mean, they're just <laughs> laying it on thick. Uh, and if this were really true, they wouldn't be trying to trip him up or trick him. They would be followers. You know, this happens quite often with uh, even when you speak to unbelievers. Uh, they, they ask you questions to try to trip you up or questions to try to prove you wrong, not questions that they're truly seeking. And I love what the Bible teaches us about these sorts of things. The Bible says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Just trust the Lord. He'll give you the words to say at the time to say it. Don't don't worry about it. Just walk in the Lord. Trust in him. And so they come to him with this question after buttering it up. And by the way, Proverbs tells us that an enemy multiplies his kisses, but trustworthy is the rebuke of a friend. Think about that carefully. An enemy will multiply their kisses. They'll lay it on thick. They'll tell you everything is great. But whereas a true friend will tell you the reality of the situation. So these enemies of Jesus come to him. And his first question to them, or his first comment back to them is, why put me to the test? I know what you're doing. You're not fooling anybody here. I know why you're coming to me. It's not to tell me how true I am. It's not to tell me how great of a teacher I am or what authority I have. You're coming here to test me, to try to trip me up. But notice what Jesus does. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, if these guys were so opposed to the system, why did they have a denarius on them? You see, they're already a part of the system. They're already collecting money. They've got it already on them, and they're coming to Jesus saying, where does this denarius go? So they bring it to Jesus. Jesus says, well, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. All right, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Listen, you're already a part of the system. Give to Caesar what belongs to him and to God what belongs to him. Now think about this. Whose image is God on? What? what us. 
The Bible tells us we were created in the image of God. Man and woman created in the image of God. We belong to God. Everybody on this earth belongs to God. We are to be the given to God. Not, not, not just our money. It's not about the money. And so we should pay our taxes. We should support our government. You know, governments are actually a major blessing to God. I was just in a, a country with a poor government that has no constitution. And, and, that, and I, I, I was reflecting on the way home. Lord, thank you so much for a government that has a constitution. That you can't have just a ruling party. The Maoists can't come in and just say, okay, now we're communists. And then the next party take over and then now we're going this way and so on. That can't happen in our country because of our wonderful constitution. I'm so thankful for that. Government is a wonderful blessing from God. And of course, obviously God doesn't approve of government abuses or things like that. But just the fact that we can have the stability in society, just the fact that we have trash men who come and pick up our trash and take it away, the fact that we have water to turn on that's clean, these are all wonderful benefits of military that can serve and protect our nation. These are wonderful benefits that our tax dollars go to. And so we, the Christians shouldn't gripe about paying tax. I know none of us like tax season. I, we all like, oh, it's tax time and just the, the paperwork and the... And, I, I actually, my wife, I got to tell you, my wife usually, somehow I always get out of, of getting ready for the tax person. And I'm, I'm not sure how. And honey, I want to tell you right now, I'm so thankful to you. But um, my wife ends up usually putting all the receipts together and stuff. And I'm like, oh, you're already done? I was going to help you this year. You know? <laughs> so it's like, whatever, Dave. <laughs> and so, uh, and, but, um, I, you know, I, I get stressed because I see how much work she does getting ready for taxes. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing to, to be able to have the benefits from a government. So the Christians shouldn't be griping about taxes. We should give back to our government. And, and, you know, our government, thankfully, has all these different things. Hey, you can deduct this. Oh, if you give to charities, you can deduct that. You give to a church, oh, you can deduct that. I mean, that's awesome that our government even honors those type of gifts. So, but here, they're asking Jesus, well, you know, how do we get out of this? And Jesus said, no, you don't get out of it. You pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. You you belong to God. You were created in his image. So how will you render to God what is God's? Well, that comes in Romans, remember? That comes through Jesus' teaching. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's costly. It's going to cost you something. But I'll tell you right now, there's a major blessing that comes with it. I, uh, coming back from Nepal, one of the things I think about was, you know, everybody's, oh, you're so glad you're back, and everybody's so happy to see me, which I appreciate, because I was afraid I'd come back and be like, oh, art's not taking over? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I thought about was, man, I was so blessed, because I got to go and, Lord, we need this, and I got to see the Lord just provide. It was awesome. I, I was so blessed by seeing what God was doing, working and serving in that way. I'm blessed every Sunday by seeing how, how people respond to the gospel and respond to the messages. I'm, those are blessings to me because I'm willing to lay aside to say, Lord, here I am, use me. I know the same is true for our worship team. They love 
playing worship up here, not because of any applause they're going to get. In fact, when I talk to them, the thing they love most is those times in the sanctuary when everybody's lifting their arm and they hear you singing at them amidst the noise. That's what they love the most. That's what they respond to the most because they're like, Lord, you're using us right now. I want to be a sacrifice to the Lord, a living sacrifice. And I hope you do too. That's the application we really can draw back to this is give to Caesar, pay your taxes, and devote yourselves to God. Give yourselves over to God in your workplace, in your home life. Whatever it takes, submit yourself to the Lord in all that you do. And just wait and see what happens. Now, of course, they're not ready to do that. But they did marvel at him. Man, he dodged that question good. Let's go to the second question. Mark 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, let me just pause for a minute before we continue reading Jesus' answer. What they're asking, they're actually making fun of the idea of a resurrection. They're posing a problem to say, this is why a resurrection can't exist. Because this man died, and like the law, and Moses says in Deuteronomy, in chapter 25, it tells you what to do. If a, a woman's husband dies, then the next brother takes her for a wife. That way she's not, she's not alone, she's taken care of, and she has an opportunity to bear a child. Of course, that child's going to be named after her dead husband. And so on. And so this goes on for seven sons, this, the, the, their question. Now, if you remember, there was an option for a way out. If you didn't want to take your brother's wife or you're the, the, what's called the kinsman redeemer, um, you, could, you could say no. You, that was your right to say no. And we saw that in the book of Ruth. Remember, uh, the kinsman redeemer closest to redeeming Ruth said, I don't want you. So Ruth got to take off his shoe and spit at him. And the, that's what you got to do. So publicly at the city gates, you got to get his shoe and spit at him, and then he became the man without a shoe, and that was a, a major disgrace. So can you imagine today if that's, how, if that's how it worked? If your spouse leaves you for a wrong reason, okay, give me your shoe, spit on him, and you're off. So, but, um, you know, it wouldn't be bad if our culture did have a little bit more shame about things that, that, that would, uh, and, and honor about other things. That, that wouldn't be bad, but I'm not saying we should do that. Anyway, so they were allowed to, do, to reject it if they didn't want to. But in this case, the scenario they're setting up is all seven sons married her, but, or seven brothers, but none of them could give her a, a son. So in the resurrection, whose wife is she? So Jesus says to them, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? First application, I want to stop right here at this verse and show you what Jesus is doing. They, they're making two errors. One, they don't know the word of God, the scriptures. And two, they don't understand the power of God. They think God is limited in his power, that God can't raise somebody up from the dead. They, they're rejecting this idea because, remember, they only believe the first five books of the Bible. And so, so they, 
They don't know their scriptures. This is often the times where most of us make our errors in these two areas. We don't know the scriptures or we don't know the power of God or won't trust him. We, we don't know the scriptures, meaning we, when we struggle with moral questions or moral decisions within our country, we try to rationalize them or figure them out ourselves. We, we, we're dealing with a situation where, I don't know, it seems like this would be the right thing to do. Let me give you a scenario. I worked with youth for a long time, and this is not just a mindset of youth, but here's a moral question. What if a woman is raped and she gets pregnant? Is it right for her to have an abortion? You'll be surprised at how many people will say yes because they're so upset and they feel so bad for the woman who's raped. But see, one wrong, one sin doesn't justify murder. And that's what the Bible teaches us. And as much as we want it to be okay for this woman to somehow get a clean conscience or be able to forget about what what sin took place against her or forget about the grief or whatever it is, she'll never feel better by murdering or doing more sin. That's not going to work that way. And so these are the moral dilemmas that we come to and where we make the mistake is we know not the scriptures. We don't go to God and say, God, I'm lost here on this decision. God, it seems to me right to do this, but I'm not sure if it's right to you, Lord. What, is, what would your scripture say? That's knowing the scripture. And then on the other hand, knowing the power of God, the same woman saying, listen, a tragedy happened to me, but I believe when my God says he will take these evil things and turn it for my good because I love the Lord, I will keep this child. That's, knowing the, that's trusting the power of God. Knowing the scriptures and trusting the power of God. And here's where the Sadducees were in grave error. They neither knew either, either of these two things. So verse 25, Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So right away he's confronting their second idea that they don't believe in, angels. So there's no marriage in heaven. My wife, I have a funny story about this, and I hope she's okay with me sharing it. When we were first married uh, in, in love, and we were actually more in love now, just so you know. I, I, I said that wrong. <laughs> really wrong. Anybody have a couch tonight <laughs> so but when we were first married she says you know it's I I, I might be misremembering this but it, it was something to the extent like she was kind of sad that we won't be married in heaven and she said like you know can, can we hang out in heaven and I, and I think I responded like well if I'm not busy <laughs> yeah she's the saint trust me <laughs> so <laughs> anyway but the relationships in heaven will be so much greater, so much deeper than what we can experience. Honestly, a good marriage is probably one of the best, deepest relationships you can ever have in your lifetime. I really believe that. It's incredible. Um, if you're not married, that's okay. It's not like you're missing out. It's, marriage, I, th- I really truly believe it's provided by God to some and some not. And marriage isn't easy, trust me. Marriage is very hard. In fact, marriage comes with a whole other set of problems. Not on my wife's end, just me. Um, so, but marriage comes with a whole other set of problems, but <clears throat> I truly believe that you can have such a deep relationship in marriage, and in heaven, it'll be even deeper. Deeper with all of us. 
deeper than a marriage relationship. And so Jesus says there, there's no marrying in heaven. It's not going to be like that. There's no need for, remember, there's no death anymore. There's no need for continual having kids or anything like that. So the marriage relationship doesn't exist in heaven. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You know, I, I'm so thankful that Jesus spoke this because I would have never picked up on this. Like, I've read, you know, I read through the Old Testament. I read, knew the story of the burning bush when I was a kid. But I never thought about the theological statement that God made and how deep that was and how rich it was by saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I never even thought the fact that God was in that passage sharing about the resurrection. I thought he was just proclaiming, hey, I'm the God of your fathers. Not I, am, I was the God of your fathers. I am the God because these guys are still living because I'm the living God and the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Man, that's amazing. Again, in Nepal... I see a whole bunch of gods everywhere who are dead but still worshipped. I, I don't even understand it really and I, I need to study more. But gods everywhere. Gods of the dead. Gods with no power to resurrect. In fact, the gods don't have the power to reincarnate. That doesn't belong to them in Hinduism. It belongs to Brahman, the, the energy in the world. It just it's, comes back to you. That's, that's their power. They, their gods are powerless when it comes to life over death. But not our God. Our God is the living God and the God of the living. And anyone who follows him has that hope and that promise in the resurrection. Listen to what Job says. Job says this in, in chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed... Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Man, what a powerful statement that Job makes. And I, I truly believe this was under the power of God's spirit that he writes this, that he knows his Redeemer lives, and that although his flesh is, his flesh is destroyed, he will see him in his flesh. That's an incredible statement about the resurrection. We may not fully understand it, but that's the hope that every believer has, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits from the dead. And we too, like it, will also get to be that fruit. The first fruits, what are those? The first fruits are, are, are when you're, it's grape time and you're harvesting grapes, those first grapes that come off. You take those grapes and you taste them, you smash them up, you go, okay, is this going to be a good wine this year? Yeah, there's some berry notes and, yeah, currants. Okay, I don't even know how they do that. But anyway, um, <laughs> I try to act cool. Yeah, that's a good one. You're like, yeah, that's $2 wine. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's grape juice, Dave. It's not wine. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just been sitting in the fridge too long. No. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, they, they take the first fruits, those grapes, and they test to see how good the rest of the fruit will be. Our first fruits are really good. They're Jesus Christ. Him raised from the dead. 
Paul tells us. Paul tells us in Corinthians 15, in that whole chapter about the, re, the, the coming resurrection, he's correcting the Corinthian church because they, they've started to not believe the resurrection. And he says, hey, if Christ has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile. And you should be pitied more than any man on the face of the planet. That's what Paul tells us. You see, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he is the first fruits, and what's coming is even better. We too get to rise from the dead. We too will have new bodies. And he goes on to explain the difference between a resurrection body and to this body. This body is weak. This body is the perishable. This body gets sick. This body gets older. And uh, I, saw, I saw a video on Facebook. I'm so upset about this video. It's really bothering me, and it's also a challenge to me. Great glory. I, I saw this video of this older guy jumping 32 inches up onto a bar, and I'm like, man, that guy looks like Greg Laurie. And then I go, like, it is Greg Laurie. He's 62. What's a 62-year-old jumping that high? I can't jump that high. And, and then I'm realizing, like, man, he's really been getting fit. Oh, man, look at that. That's great. You know, but I think about it, and in the resurrection, we won't die. We won't, we won't be corrupted. We won't get sick. These ailments that we deal with in this life won't be an issue with the resurrection body. It's, it's going to be a wonderful thing. And that's our hope as Christians. And, of course, Jesus confronts them on this issue. And, and he lets them know that there will be a resurrection, and this is the hope we look forward to. But you've got to know the Scripture and know trust in the power of God. You are quite wrong to the Sadducees. You don't got it right. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I really believe Mark puts this, this scribe in and kind of helps us to understand that Jesus is being, being challenged by the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees. And this scribe, I think, is watching. And he's hearing Jesus' answers and going, whoa, he really knows what he's talking about. He's, he's actually really wise. You know, I wonder what he thinks about this. You see, 613 laws in the Old Testament, all of which the Jews would try to remember, all of which they wanted to keep, especially a scribe. That's what he does. He knows the law in and out. The, the scribes would take body parts and they would divide them up between the lesser laws and the greater laws, and they would argue over which laws are the most important to keep and which laws are lesser laws. And we have those same sorts of ethical discussions and moral discussions. And, uh, and let me give you an example. Uh, during Nazi Germany, was it okay to lie to save people's lives? And we'd say yes, absolutely, because the, the, um, the hiding place, that story, it's like, well, obviously that's the greater thing to preserve life and go against this government that has clearly gone against God. And so we have these discussions, too, amongst ourselves. And so Jesus is asked about this question, which one is the greatest, the most important of all? And this is what he answers, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus' response to this man is the Shema. The, and the word Shema just means here in Hebrew. And it's in Deuteronomy 6.5. And, and devout Jews would say this morning and night. They would pray this prayer, the Shema. And, they would, and it's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Now think about that for a minute. Listen up, all of Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord, the covenant maker with us. He's ours. We partake in him. He chose us. We're a part of him. He's our God. He's the covenant maker. The Lord is one. He's a unified God. He's, he's the only God. He's one. There's no, no other gods beside him. He's it. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With every bit of your being, you are to love God first. Every bit of your being. Your mind the thoughts. We take captive every thought and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, Corinthians tells us. We're, we're, we're not to, to just give away to thoughts of depression, thoughts of deceitfulness, thoughts of lust, thoughts of the cravings of the flesh. No, we're to take captive those thoughts. These thoughts, this mind, it belongs to God. With my heart, my devotion, it belongs to God. My house, it will serve the Lord. My, my, my income, it will serve the Lord. My being, it will serve the Lord. This is my devotion, my love, my passion in life. It's the Lord. My strength, the things that I do, the things that I put my hands to, my will to, I'm going to do it in such a way that it honors God. I'm going to be the best electrician for the Lord. I'm, I'm gonna, if I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to be an accountant for the Lord. If whatever I do, whatever my hands set forth to do, it will be to honor the Lord and not to go and sin against him. I'm committing my whole body, being, mind, heart to him. That is the most important commandment. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's interesting because often these things get reversed we start saying, love our neighbor first. Oh, you know, love your neighbor. That's, that is good. It's really important. But we're not to love our neighbor first and then love God. We're to love God with everything, then love our neighbor. That's how we get in trouble. We know not the scriptures nor the power of God. And we start convincing ourselves that loving our neighbor is the most important thing. And that means, that, of course, in our culture, agreeing with whatever our neighbor does don't ever say anything's wrong. Don't ever judge anything. Don't, you know, uh, if, if, if you say you disagree with something, oh, that's judgmental. No, you disagree because you love your neighbor. You, you go out of your way for your neighbor. You serve your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Well, Jesus redefined that. It's anybody in life that you come in contact with, they've now become your neighbor. Anybody. So you love God first, and that will teach you how to love your neighbor. That will be the fruit. Loving God, and then the fruit of loving God is loving your neighbor. That's how it works out. Loving your neighbor. I see you guys hugging. Oh, neighbor. So, by the way, loving your neighbor isn't the easy neighbors to love. It's actually the extremely difficult neighbors to love. Uh, we had a neighbor 
uh, in our house that we rented in Garden Grove, and she uh, would take in every stray cat. And that's cool for her, but not for my front yard. My front yard smelled like a litter box, always. It was terrible. So I came up with a plan, and you guys are going to say I'm terrible for this, to shoot paintballs at cats. <laughs> so I actually cat lovers are like, you're the devil. So <laughs> you don't understand how bad it was. Because normally my wife is always against my plans too, but this time she wasn't. So uh, I got a couple. There a couple went home with paint on them. But... Um, <laughs> Nonetheless, it really didn't work because it still smelled like a litter box. It was terrible. But you know what? i got to love my neighbor. I don't, I, don't, I don't start taking the poop over to my neighbor's yard and throwing it in their yard. You know, I don't start ruining their yards or bring my dog over there to, all right, come on. You know, that's not how you treat your neighbor as a Christian. Even if your neighbor's not being kind to you, you're going to love your neighbor because you love your God. Remember, it's because you love your God that you're going to love your neighbor. And notice what he says to this man. As this man replies back to him, he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Interesting. This man got it. He knew that this is more important than every offering I could ever bring, loving God. Because when I love God, my offerings are worthwhile. They're meaningful. My offerings mean something. But why was he not, why was he Still not there yet. Well, because he had to accept Jesus Christ. He had to welcome Jesus Christ into his life. He had to make Jesus Christ the Lord of his life. That was, that was the last bit of it. See, keeping the law will never get you there into the kingdom. Keeping the law just brings you close to the kingdom. But, it, but as soon as you realize that the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that burden is lifted off of you, and you realize that he's done the work. He's done it all. Now I get to rejoice. He's, he's taken and filled me up with all the blessing. He's done it all for me. He's alleviated the burden from me. And now I'm ready to follow him. Listen, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have to get your passport through Jesus Christ. That's it. I, uh, one thing I love about traveling to countries is my passport. I love my passport. Because my passport represents... Our great nation, and we have a great nation. Amidst all your complaints about the politics and whatever the case is, the fact that we can complain about our politics makes this nation a great nation. But we really do. I love traveling. I, I'm actually very proud to hand my passport. Like, I look at the other people, oh, you're just from there, huh? Look at that. There, there it is. <laughs> I saw the Chinese coming into Nepal in this big caravan. And I just was like, they, they, they had their propaganda on the side of their cars. Nepal and China, friends forever. Nepal and China, a friendship that can never break. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons I think Nepal denied getting more help from the UK or from the US. But anyway, I was just like, yeah, but they don't know what freedom tastes like, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so. But I, I love my passport because my passport says that I'm a part of this great country. But more so than that, I love that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I love that I belong to God's kingdom. That there's an, a, an eternal kingdom, a citizenship that is happening right now that I'm a part of that I'll more fully see and understand later on. And that's only through Jesus Christ that I'm born again, that I'm born into that kingdom. You can be too. 
You can be born into the kingdom of God. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I want what you did for me on that cross. I want to accept what you've done for me for my sins. I'm ready to turn from my sin to deny myself and follow you. I'm ready to do that. And I want those blessings. I want to have a hope and a resurrection. All you need to do is give your life to him. Say, Lord, you be the Lord of my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for your goodness. We thank you that your word is true. And your word is never lets us down, God. You always guide us through every tough decision. We thank you, Lord, for your power. That, God, you are all powerful. That there is none like you. That where we fell, where humans fell, where, where our trust may fail, God, you will never fail. And we thank you, Lord, that we can depend upon the one who depends upon no one. Lord, we thank you for that. Now, if you're in this room tonight and you haven't asked the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, you just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Thank you for dying on that cross on my behalf. And thank you for raising from the dead. I'm ready to follow you. Come into my life and be my king. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask now you bless our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.